Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest from New York City, Isabel Mavrides Calderon. Isabel is a 17-year-old disability rights activist who focuses her work on campaigning for policy change, anti-ableism, and accessibility. Recently, she has hosted campaigns for disability rights bills with the American Civil Liberties Union and the Center for Disability Rights. She was also an accessibility consultant for the Australian climate strike and is currently working on writing a research paper on accessibility and education post COVID-19 that she hopes to publish and use to enact policy change for disabled people in education. She loves public speaking in conferences, speech tournaments and her TikTok where she speaks about disability rights issues. Welcome Isabel. Thank you so much for joining me here virtually. How are Thank you doing? Thank you for today? having me. You're welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Awesome. So I think the big question is, I've, I, you know, we've talked a little bit, I've looked at your Instagram, but can you just tell me and tell the viewers and listeners how you got involved in disability justice advocacy? So when I became disabled, I was 11 years old. I had a spinal injury and discovered I had a genetic disease. And when that happened, I placed a lot of blame on my own body and myself whenever I would like face a barrier. But over time, I realized that when I did have access or accommodations, I could quite literally do anything and my body was never really an issue. Um, so when I realized that, then like the question came, why don't we just always have access to accommodations? Uh, so once I realized that and I had that like self-realization, I really, my mindset shifted into how can I create a world where these barriers don't exist and where my body isn't an issue. Um, and that's really when I started getting into that work. And um, I started really by doing research, um, doing a lot of research into policy and legislation and identifying what were the changes we needed to make. And that's when I started organizing. Thank you. And when you talk about accessibility, are you talking in public spaces or were you talking in schooling? Did you notice them everywhere in society or was it mostly in your schooling system? I think it's both. I mean, school definitely plays a huge aspect as a student. Mm -hmm. That's something I see all the time, but also just in our everyday lives, like living in a major city, I see lack of access everywhere. Um, but I do think that both in the private sector and publicly, it's a huge issue. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in thinking about that, a lot of your work is around anti-ableist language and behaviors and language itself really matters. And so could you speak a little bit about how language informs your work? Yeah, language surrounding disability has been a very contentious topic um, recently. I think in what was definitely a very non-malicious effort, able-bodied folk have like tried to control the narrative surrounding how we view disability. And because there is this ableist misconception that disability is a bad thing and inherently like a flaw and an insult in like someone's person, uh, they really tried to create language that reflects that and covers up disability. So that's why we have words like differently abled, uniquely abled, special needs, words that really tiptoe around the fact that there's disability and cover it up. And unfortunately, this world has seen these as the right 
words to use. Academia has picked up these words as the norm, as what should be used. Um, in a lot of DEI spaces, the words that are taught to use is differently abled because it's become the norm and seen as the correct thing when in reality, um, the disabled community is does not agree with that. And so I try to be incredibly intentional with my language. I always try to use the word disabled because it is a direct description of our bodies. And if we're describing our bodies, how can that be wrong? How can that be a bad thing? Um, but I've definitely seen, unfortunately, in a lot of activism spaces and nonprofits I've worked for, um, especially when they're run by able-bodied folk, that they get incredibly uncomfortable when I do unapologetically say the word. Um, and they push back against it and try to cover it up. And now I think as an activist, I definitely see that as a red flag. If I see an organization telling me not to use that word and not following what disabled people say, um, because they are, refuse to educate themselves um, or listen to actual disabled folk on the issue, then I no longer work with them. So I definitely see that like language as like, are you choosing to follow the disabled community or not? Yeah, and you know, you've kind of spotlighted how ableism kind of manifests in language and the behaviors as well of folks who are talking about disability, who are even trying to advocate for disability. And I definitely uh, hear that because I know a lot of folks say, oh, you shouldn't say disabled person. You shouldn't say a person with a disability because you're defining them by their disability. And through kind of the work I've done in my own kind of exploration, that is who they are. Why are we trying to remove that from the person as if it's a bad thing? And I think it really kind of reinforces this binary thinking when we remove it as if it's a negative, as if it's abnormal, right? And I think, you know, I, I know you mentioned some of the words, but maybe you can share with us just a few more words or uh, phrases that folks should get comfortable saying um, and maybe even why. And you, you did mention a few. Yeah, I, I do think people should get comfortable just saying disabled or this person is disabled. I know I'm not autistic myself, but I know the autistic community for the most part prefers saying autistic instead of person with autism. So I think that just having comfort naming someone's condition or naming disability itself um, as a descriptor um, is just something that we should all become comfortable saying because it isn't a bad word um, because you're right. It just it describes us. So how could it be? Absolutely. And would you say, you know, in my experience, I always say it's it's good to ask or get informed or get to know how a person wants to describe themselves, because I know that some folks prefer disabled, some folks prefer person with a disability. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? Absolutely. A disability community is not a monolith, so I mm -hmm. can never speak for each person and however each person identifies. So if a disabled person tells me to call them differently abled, I will 100 percent call them differently abled, even if for me, myself personally, it's not the word that I would use to describe myself, um, because at the end of the day, it is their identity. So um, whatever they want to be called, I would follow, um, regardless of my own beliefs behind the theories of disability. And um, so, yeah, I think just calling someone however they feel comfortable and whatever they identify with is incredibly important. Yeah, and I just want to repeat what you said, right? The disabled community is not a monolith, just like any other equity-seeking group is not a monolith. I think that's really important. And that sort of leads me to my next question. In your experience, how do intersecting identities, so for example, race and gender, ethnicity, intersect with your experience of disability and with disability? 
and perhaps what are the impacts of these intersections? Oh yeah, there are huge intersections. Like disability as an identity cannot be seen in a vacuum and disability justice can't be addressed in a vacuum because we're like multifaceted human beings. We all hold multiple identities and intersection identities definitely like impact how someone has the disabled experience. Um, From a civil rights perspective, we have seen how like, for example, women, particularly women of color, experience medical gaslighting at much higher rates. Um, The incarceration rates for people of color are much higher and the incarceration rates for disabled folk are much higher. So when you overlap both of those identities, you have an incredibly high incarceration rates for people of color who are disabled. Um, So we, we really can't just focus on one aspect of the identity. When we're doing disability justice work, we can't just act as if the only community we're serving is the white, straight, disabled person, um, because that isn't the entire community. Um, one in four people are disabled, and within that, everyone has intersecting identities and different um, categories of people. So I think that when we are doing disability justice work, it's important that we also have to focus on anti-racism, to focus on like LGBTQ issues, everything, because um, like we are multifaceted human beings. Absolutely. And you know, something I'm seeing in my community, so I identify as South Asian, I find that there is a lot more awareness now, but there still exists this cultural bias and this cultural stigma with people with disabilities, right? Whether it's a lack of knowledge or awareness, sometimes there's even a pathologizing. Sometimes when I think about ethnicity, race, and the intersection of religion, I also see this um, type of pathologizing or type of assumption of change and, you know, ableist language like, oh, everything happens for a reason, or, you know, we could try this and trying to sort of uh, demean or trying to remove stigma uh, around disabilities. Do you find that you experience that or you've seen that within cultural or ethnic racial communities? Oh, absolutely. I think how a culture views disability is different everywhere. Um, I'm Ecuadorian and I have immigrant parents and I've definitely seen personally how my culture interacts with disability um, is some different from diff- other people's cultures. Like in Hispanic culture, there's a huge issue of machismo and this idea where you push through no matter what. Um, and that often leads to covering up disability um, and just acting as if it's this huge flaw. Um, I know a lot of people in different cultures, they see it in different ways. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing to see how society interprets disability um, and really shows how so many social constructs surround disability. And you can see that when you look at how it changes through different cultures. Absolutely. And especially with, you know, there's a lot of campaigns right now around invisible disabilities, but I think especially with invisible disabilities, I notice a lot of cultural pushback, cultural bias and stigma, for example, around depression or anxiety. And so for me, it's kind of that awareness piece, which kind of leads me to ask you about, you know, last week, I think it was last Friday, uh, December 3rd was the International Day for Persons with Disabilities. And I know you graded some videos and things like that, but uh, how did you sort of create awareness on this day about visible and invisible disabilities And then piggybacking on that question, what role do you think youth can play in disability activism? 
So I actually went into this day having no plans to do anything. But then I was looking through my Instagram feed and I had saw so many infographics, pictures, organizations posting, and all the images I was seeing was of like the same image of a disabled person in a wheelchair. Um, and that was the image across the board being used. Um, and I didn't really want to think that like, oh, it's just like all people see disability as. Um, because to me, myself, I don't look at like what you would think disability would look like um, based on our social contracts. And I know so many people with invisible disabilities or disabilities that are unique and very complex. Um, so I, spur of the moment that day, contacted a bunch of disabled people with like a broad range of disability and put together a video um, with them saying disability looks like this um, to show that like this, there's no look to disability. Um, what, what people don't realize is that 90% of disabilities are invisible, um, which is, I think, a huge number to think about. Um, so I think when people realize that disability can quite literally look like anything, they, they can open their minds to seeing that it's not one size fits all. Um, different people need accommodations that you don't might, might not expect need accommodations. Um, different people need accessibility that you might not expect, and they all need it in different ways because all of our disabilities are different. They're not, it's not one size fits all. Um, so that's what I did for um, the day. As for youth, um, I think youth can play a huge role in the movement. Like we are the future and we are the ones inheriting these laws and policies. And so often the youth group is told to wait their turn and to, to let grownups handle things until we get older. And honestly, in that time, the world it just keeps getting worse. And that's the world that we're going to inherit, that we're going to pick up. So like now is the time to make change. Um, and I think it's very easy as youth to be lost in this space. So I think doing your research and formulating your own opinions based on that and then joining an organization and then making change um, is the way to go. Absolutely. So you don't have to be part of the disability community. You can research and find avenues. Uh, folks can connect with you, right, Isabel, and, and, and also do that kind of work. I also want to really push back and, and ask you more if we can share this with our listeners. You know, you said that the stat 90% of disabilities are invisible. That is substantial. And I, I wonder if you have had experiences where folks have sort of pushed back to you and said, oh, well, you're not a person with a disability. I mean, what that kind of looked like. And for those people who are listening who are new to disability justice and activism, what are those stereotypical things that people consider as disabilities and what are the things that they miss out on if you if you have insight on that? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the hardest parts of my experience has been this gaslighting constantly um, from just everyday people when it, whenever I do need to use an accommodation or point out the fact I'm disabled. Even in the activism space, whenever I'm doing public speaking or um like I did an episode of MTB about disability rights, um, people don't feel like I have the right to speak on disability because I don't seem like the stereotypical disabled person they have in their heads. Um, and oftentimes there is this confusion because people see me doing a lot of things and living a very um, full life. And they get, have the expectation that because I'm able to do these things and because I'm able to thrive as a person, that that means that I'm not truly disabled, that I don't truly have a chronic illness because I'm able to thrive. And I think that is an incredibly harmful misconception um, because just because disabled people are successful, thrive and live full lives, it doesn't take away their disability. 
this to make them any less disabled um, because we can thrive with a disability. So I think, um, sorry, <clears throat> I think recognizing that, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, chronic illness things, um, I think recognizing that like disabled people can look anyway, have any sort of life um, is incredibly important. Yeah, I think that's so important too, because, you know, when we think about this idea of it's, it's kind of like policing a disability yeah. and I, and I'm really seeing parallels between this and, you know, BIPOC folks, right. Folks of color who are making it right. Folks use the same excuse with Obama. Well, racism's not a thing anymore because we have a black president. It's the same thing, right. If, if someone who has a disability is achieving success. So, you know, uh, we have Terry Fox in Canada who achieved so much success, even though he had um, one leg amputated and he ran this um, all Canada marathon. We think, oh, you can do it. If he could do it, you can do it. And there's this real this big misconception, A, about abilities and disabilities, and also what a disabled person looks like. And then I think what happens is this idea of systemic oppression gets erased. Right. When we see, you know, someone like yourself who is doing amazing work, we have to see that as, yes, part of the solution. But we all have to be part of that solution because I think we get really trapped up into this individual versus systemic nature. And we have to see systemic oppression as multi-layered, as intersecting as, as you talked about. So uh, really important for folks to be aware of that, that it's uh, not only valid when we achieve something and disability is not only valid when we can't achieve something, right? So it's both. I don't know if you want to add anything, feel free. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of times, like my ability to succeed as a disabled person has been because of privilege and access. Um, I have an incredibly unique situation where I have parents that are able to advocate for me. I go to a private school that is accommodating. Um, I am white passing. There's so many factors that have contributed to my ability to succeed as a stable person that not everyone has. Um, so I think that it's like, yeah, we can never just be focused on one person's success or one person's lack of success and categorize that as the whole community. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the power and privilege piece because you're right, you know, as a white passing, um, you know, person with a disability, yes, you're, you're given different advantages, but it doesn't mean that you don't have uh, other areas where you, you do have needs and you do need accommodations. Um, and definitely, um, I see that and, I, and that's kind of why I was asking about the community aspect and the intersections because you know, for some folks who don't have maybe English speaking family members, or they don't have access to regular um, doctors that are in their vicinity, or even, you know, insurance, I know you live in the States and the insurance health insurance is very different. Or if they don't work for an organization that has health insurance, it can be very difficult. And I think these are the things when you talk about accommodations and asking for accommodations, that should be just a given. You know, whereas I, I have folks who suffer from anxiety, friends of mine who've said that they had to actually go through a huge lengthy process to apply for accommodations at a university because it wasn't a visible disability. And I think those are the things that I think your advocacy and all of our collective advocacy can really work towards. That if someone needs it, we need to hear them, we need to believe them, we need to make it easier, not more difficult for them to access those accommodations. Absolutely. Do you see yourself, um, you're still in high school, right? You're in grade 11? Yes. 
Do you see um, any barriers to accommodations or do you find that in your school experience, folks have been pretty accommodating or did you have to really fight for that? So I have been very lucky with an accommodating school. I go to a private school, so they technically legally aren't don't have that many um, rules in terms of accommodating for me. So if they wanted to, they could definitely push back. Um, they're not forced to follow IDEA, which is the disability rights law um, that protects us here in the United States. Um, the public schools have, um, but I have been lucky with them. It has taken advocacy and it definitely scares me a lot um, the possibility of losing that. Um, and it's definitely like, especially right now, um, I'm at home, I'm doing school from Zoom. Um, the rest of my school is in person because I'm recovering from surgery. And I think that I did have to fight to get that option, to get that online accommodation. Um, but the ability to do that means that I'm not missing school while recovering from surgery. So um, I'm very lucky, but the education system itself is incredibly broken um, for disabled folk. Absolutely. And isn't it interesting how you had to fight for that accommodation yet when we went into lockdown mode last year, you know, I I know that many folks have told me this, they've always, um, so I, I work with a lot of special ed students, and they've always wanted the online option or the hybrid option for classes. And they've always had to fight and it was always turned down. But it is so ironic that when we actually went into lockdown, you know, a year and a half ago for COVID, that that was an option. So it just shows that it is possible right? And you should be given that right if you need that right. Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that. Now, you also talked about awareness and accessibility. And I also mentioned that, you know, some people don't know what their rights are. So you've been doing a lot of awareness and activism through Instagram and TikTok. So I love your TikTok videos, by the way. And I wanted to know what made you choose social media as a platform uh, to share awareness and advocacy And what do you hope to achieve through this social media presence that you keep growing? So I love organizing and campaigning on the ground, but I realized that in my activism, only like a self-selecting group was hearing my message because whenever I would go speak at a conference about activism, it was people who were already interested in disability rights. It was people who were academics, people who were already in the field going to see my message. So the everyday person wasn't learning about what I was saying and the everyday person wasn't coming to these events. And especially when the pandemic happened, on-the-ground activism just wasn't a thing. Um, So I started on Instagram and I started doing infographic posts and I would try to break down these civil rights issues and policy issues. I love doing research and I love learning about policy and legislation. I'm incredibly nerdy in that way. Um, But I know that all this information can be very inaccessible. Um, It's expensive to get access to peer-reviewed research papers. It is something that requires this level of education to understand. Um, So it's not always um, accessible to everyone. So I think that being able to break that down or break down these bills, break down these laws, break down what people can do um, has been really helpful for me. So that was my hope with Instagram. Um, Then like when the pandemic happened, I like most teenagers moved to TikTok um, as well. And um, I do competitive public speaking. So I love talking. Um, so TikTok was really ideal. I kind of see it as a place to do like one minute speeches. Um, and it's really um, given me the opportunity to break down these issues and do videos. And it's also been a great tool to mobilize people. I've been able to get people to um, call their senators, come to like ACLU campaign events with me. I've been able to get people to come to protests that I've met in person through TikTok videos. So it's just been a great tool for mobilization. And I find that honestly, like when I'm in a conference and like 100 people see things, 
it's very different that TikTok where I have a completely fresh audience of random people, many times young people, where thousands of people see it in this completely more diverse, random group of people instead of self-selecting academics that already know about disability. That's a really great point. I love how you said that you're able to mobilize. So you're finding that people who are not in, you know, academia or not already involved in disability justice are actually seeing your posts and showing up at places and contacting local officials. Is that right? Yes, it's been great. Um, a great tool to get people to sign petitions, uh, do, go to campaigning events. It's really a great place to mobilize. That is amazing. That's really, really amazing because as we said, right, you know, folks who are able-bodied like myself, we have to figure out how we can gain awareness and how we can mobilize, right, to support. And, you know, you did mention some of the experiences that you had um, in terms of barriers to the education system and accessibility. Are there any other uh, experiences or advice you want to share for folks who maybe are trying to gain awareness to support a friend or who themselves are disabled and are looking to overcome some of these barriers to access, uh, they can definitely watch your TikToks. But is there anything else that you can share about your experience and some tips for them to navigate the system? The education system? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think one of the biggest issues in our education system is that we're not giving disabled students nor disabled parent, uh, parents of disabled children the tools to advocate for their children. Um, the process of getting an IEP or a 504 plan is incredibly complex, often incredibly expensive. It requires having parents that often speak the, need to speak the language, um, need to understand these laws, need to know how to get the testing, need to pay for the testing, um, need to manage that whole legal system. And parents aren't being taught how to do this. They're just being expected to figure it out. And that's as a result, disabled students are getting left behind and the laws that are there to protect them aren't being implemented um, because no one is supporting them. And it should not be on parents to become many lawyers for their children. Um, and it creates an incredible disparity um, within socioeconomic and race um, for disabled students. But it, it, I think we need a systemic change in terms of educating parents and at making sure kids are getting advocated for. And then I also think that we need just policy changes um, because the law that we do have idea is not enough. Um, there's huge loopholes and it's not enforced enough. So even kids who do have the maximum advocacy and the maximum protections are not getting proper education. Um, like we said before with the thing about um, everything going online, um, right now, um, disabled students that are, have to stay home because of either the pandemic or school doesn't have a mask mandate, whatever it might be, some of them are getting hours of school, like literally two hours of school, completely separate from their peers. And the law idea um, mandates that disabled students are educated alongside able-bodied students to the maximum extent possible. So right now, that isn't happening world, like around this country. So the law isn't even being followed. So I know that was a bit of a rant, but... No, it's important to know this, yeah. right? Because I think this is a call out for teachers, for students, for policymakers to really be aware of that. Is this not happening in your school? And if not, why? And for me, I was a special education consultant for a large school board here in Toronto. And so for me, you know, people who are listening, if you need support with IEPs, you can reach out to me. Isabel, you can ask people if they want help with IEPs. I know it's a little bit different, but it's basically the same in the US and, and Canada. So definitely can help folks with that. 
because I agree with you, especially for me, I see uh, parents and students and the intersections of race and class and gender really having a trouble with the IEPs because it's not explained to them properly. They don't necessarily understand all the jargon and the edge you speak and the language. And that's that first barrier, right? Is getting there and then the policy and then implementing that policy once you cross that line, like you said, because uh, this is a very different time that we're experiencing, but it is a time for change, you know, through the pandemic. Absolutely. And so I know that you gave some advice already, but I just wanted to know concretely if there's any advice you have for folks who are still new to understanding disability rights, as well as recognizing the invisible nature of many disabilities. If there's any advice you have, or if there's any message you want to send out to our listeners. Um, listen to the disabled community themselves and do your research. Um, I think many organizations um, might brand themselves as being for disability rights, but advocate for the exact opposite. So that's why I think um, instead of blindly following an organization, um, make your own informed opinions, research, 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 and then um, find out how you can make change and listen to the disabled community. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And just in case you have any specifics, is there any go-to documents, websites, books that you recommend for folks to sort of start their journey or continue their journey? Absolutely. If In, in terms of books, um, my main suggestion would be to read Disability Visibility um, by Alice Wong. It's an incredible collection of narratives from disabled people themselves. Um, Being Human um, by Judy Human, who is the leader of the disability rights movement. Um, she's like the pioneer. Um, she breaks down the disability rights movement. Knowing the history is so important and knowing the issues. She's an incredible person to follow and research about. Um, and then also um, Diversability is an incredible organization that has a ton of information and is run by disabled people. Um, so yeah, those are my suggestions. Perfect. We'll be sure to put those on our website for folks to check out Now, you're 17, you have accomplished a whole lot. I'm truly inspired by everything you've done. What is next for you? What do you hope to move towards or achieve in the future? What are are your goals? Um, You've got a long life ahead. So what what do you hope to do? Um, I definitely want to study public policy and um, go directly either into um, the world of law and do like disability rights law or go into the world of like enacting policy change for disability rights um, and working with nonprofits. So I guess I have time to decide, but I definitely, definitely want to stick in the side of making policy change for disability rights um, in any way I can. That's amazing. That's really, really great to hear. So folks who are listening who are in policy, we have a, a public policy analyst and public policy maker uh, in, in, the, in training here <laughs> for you. Anything else that you want listeners to know or hear or do? Um, I think I covered what I wanted to say for the most part, other than um, just take disabled people seriously. Um, Don't lower your expectations for us. Um, We are like anyone else, one in four people are disabled and chances are you know disabled people in your lives. We're all around you. Absolutely. And then very lastly, where can people find you, follow you, connect with you, Tell us all your social handles, and then we'll also put it in our show notes for folks. On Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, I am Powerfully Isa, and my email is powerfullyisa at gmail.com if you ever need anything. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me uh, while you're recovering, and it's been just so lovely connecting with you and 
for your uh, generosity of your time. We really appreciate it, folks. I hope that you will take some action and think about either reading some of the books that Isabel has recommended or taking action by contacting your local government officials or if you're a teacher or someone who works in the school board to really think about uh, shifting your practice to make disability accessibility truly accessible um, and available to all. So thank you all for listening. If you love this episode, please rate and comment on our episodes and let us know what you'd like to hear more about. Follow the podcast and visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, listen to this podcast and past podcast episodes at www.curated-leadership.com and listen wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great day.